the first bonus episode of the We Are NTC podcast. It is my pleasure to be able to share with you a recent sermon that was preached in our first community chapel of the 2022 academic year. We were honored to have the district superintendent for the Australian North and West District and the field strategy coordinator, the Reverend Roland Hearn, preach for us. His sermon focuses on Philippians chapter 2, so if you'd like to get your Bibles ready, let's explore this passage together. Thank you, Roland. A number of years ago, actually, let's say, oh my goodness gracious, somewhere beyond 25 years ago, I was uh, sitting in my living room, pastoring um, in the Maribor Church, and I happened to be watching a special uh, documentary on TV about uh, some of the wonders of the Kimberleys. And uh, lots and lots of things were amazing about the Kimberleys, about the Kimberley district. But one of the things that stood, there were two things that stood out in my mind from that uh, documentary. The first was um, was the, the reverse waterfall. So that the, the river that runs down towards the sea, but when the tide comes in, it, it comes in so high and so fast that it, it backs up and it, and it flows the opposite direction. I thought, wow, that would be, that would be worth seeing. A, a, a waterfall that goes backwards, that would be, that'd be worth seeing. And then as I continue to watch that, that uh, documentary, they focused on a, uh, on a, um, a fishing um, expedition. Uh, there's, there are ships, uh, boats out there or um, businesses out there that take people fishing out um, off, the, off the shelf out there on the, on, on the northwest Australia. And, and uh, they were filming this, this uh, uh, fishing trip and these guys are pulling in these great big fish. And I love fishing. Um, I love catching fish, I might, I might prefer to say. Um, I've been on plenty of trips when, uh, when you put the line in and three or four hours later, you're bragging about the nibbles you got. Um, that's, that's, that's to me, um, you know, you do that once or twice and you've had that experience. But going out fishing and catching lots of fish is just something that um, is, uh, is um, I love that. Had the chance when we're living in um, Dallas to go with a friend down off Houston and, and he had a friend that had a boat and, and uh, we took the boat out to the oil rigs off Dallas and, and uh, threw our lines in and we just started catching fish all day to the point that we were throwing snapper back like that because they were too small. And uh, the next day we got, got back to the church and we threw it on a spontaneous barbecue after church. We, we fed 70 people on the fish that we caught um, that day. So that was a great fishing trip. That lives in my, in my memory. But I was watching this, these, this fishing trip. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. But that, would, that, would, that could never happen. That would never happen. And I looked over at the over in the corner of the room here, and here's my, my two sons. Um, they were about seven and five or four or whatever their ages were at that point in time. And I looked over at them, and an idea occurred to me. So I went over to my sons, and I thought, wow, James, how much dad loves you? And they said, uh, they said yes, oh, we know dad. I said, okay, well, here's the deal. When I turned 65, you guys will be making a lot of money. <laughs> and you're all going to take me on a fishing trip to the Kimberley district, and we're going to go out there on the boat. They looked up and said, Okay, Dad. <laughs> a couple of times when they, when they were kids, I'd say to them, Hey, remember that deal we had? When I turned 65, you're going to take me on a fishing trip. And, uh, and then it kind of just dwindled off into, into history, um, as those things do. Um, 
I turned 60 this past January. I say that like I'm proud of it. <laughs> I'm ambivalent at best. In fact, it felt like I was hitting the face of the, uh, with a fresh fish. Um, it, uh, it kind of went, oh, no, what, what's that all about? But, um, but one of the gifts that I received from my oldest son was, he said to me, Dad, do you remember when we were little and you said you wanted us to take you on a fishing trip when you were 60? We were organised a fishing trip out of Noosa and we're headed out to the reef to go fishing um, off the reef um, off, off Noosa for your 60th birthday because that was the promise. Well, in the back of my mind, I said it was actually 65 <laughs> and it was the Kimberleys. <laughs> but the fact is... But I was absolutely overwhelmed. And tears came my eyes. They remembered that. The two boys had been planning for about three or four months, getting everything sorted out, and working with mum, getting it all sorted out. The details didn't matter. We're going fishing uh, first weekend of June, uh, in March, and we're going to get on the boat at Noosa and head out um, to the reef. And, and uh, we, we booked the seven hour trip. Not the three-hour trip because you know three-hour trips have all sorts of problems attached to them. We went on the swear on the seventh year if you're beginning as well, and that was seven hours, three hours. So um, we booked the seven-hour trip, and I am so looking forward to that day. I couldn't imagine it. And I looked over I went on my birthday, and, and my daughter, my oldest daughter, is there, and she's really excited about it too. But I know that she's she loves to go fishing too, and so because the deal was two sons and dad were going to what well, originally in the Kimberley. I said to my brother, my son, would you would you mind if your sister came with us? Because I think she'd like to. I said, oh, yeah, of course, we can come too. And so, so we're all going out, youngest daughter, not in the least bit interested. But we're all going out, um, the three the three older ones, um, in the first weekend of March, and, and very much looking forward to it. I was overwhelmed by that act of love. It was an act of pure love. They remembered from childhood. The, 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 the details... But it wasn't what I said. Didn't matter at all, did it? I mean, I mean my, my mind went really went, hang on a minute, that's not the deal. But, but it's straight away, but actually, this is amazing. From little kids, they've, they've remembered that. It, it's incredibly important for us. In fact, it's the most important thing that you will ever wrestle with is that God calls you to experience his love and grace, first of all. And everything that you do is not a challenge to get it right. It's a call to express love. There isn't anything more important in, in all that we do. And as I was thinking about this message for this morning, and I've been in Philippians a little bit recently, backwards and forwards, there's some really great phrases that I love at the end of Philippians. So um, I've been working through the book to, to get to those, those phrases um, and as I've been doing it, messages have been, have been coming. And, and so I've been thinking about, about this truth, this idea. Uh, those of us that are, that are studying for ministry, what's driving you? What's motivating you? Where are you going? Where are you headed? What is your dream? What is your desire? For some of us, it, it will be just that that, uh, that we just want to expand our understanding and develop ourselves as human beings. Others will have this sense of the call of God um, 
uh, upon their lives and, and, and feel like we're, we're fulfilling what God is calling you to do. Others maybe just had nothing else to do and just turned up at NTC. That's happened from time to time. But what is it that's, that's moving you? As, uh, as in my role as field strategy coordinator, I meet with the district superintendents of, of the Southern District and of the New Zealand District on a regular basis. I meet with other leaders. And, and one of the things that has been a topic of conversation for us as we've, as we've talked together has been this idea that we're, that we're very aware that we're surviving COVID as a church. Uh, in many places, there's there's a there's a genuine struggle. People saw um, early on this this move to to Zoom um, uh, uh, services, and uh, and and yet there's been a difficulty bringing people back from that place. And as time has gone on, the attendance even on Zoom has drifted off a little bit. And so there's this there's this discouragement around the church. What do we do now? How do we how do we move forward from this place? And I I hear people all the time. Uh, being discouraged um, by what has happened and uncertain about how we move forward. And so we started asking ourselves the question, how do we how do we grapple with, how do we package what it will be to be a church that's, that's putting COVID behind us and ultimately will become a memory. And there will be a, there will come a time where it's a distant memory. Um, but what will the what will the church be like then? And so there's this, there's in some quarters, there's this, this, this um, stress to work hard, to, to, to let's, let's get back and do it, work, 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 and get the job done. Let's get the job done. And uh, in other places, there's this, oh, oh, I don't know, I just don't know what we're going to do. And in the middle of that conversation, we started to think about um, what was most important in moving, in moving forward. And we came to the conclusion that the truth is that the church as it moves from this space going forward is called to be exactly the same as the church was called to this point. Now, let me just put a caveat on that. Man, that doesn't mean we will be exactly the same as the church previously, but the call is exactly the same. That's my point. The call is exactly the same. God is not calling us to be different then he has always called us to be. And as a student and as a lecturer reflecting the values uh, of, of Christ, the issue here is not why you are here necessarily. The issue is, what is God calling you to become? And let me suggest God is calling you to become what God has always called us to become. And I find this beautifully represented in, uh, in this passage of scripture. We, uh, we just to finish that, that intro a little bit, we came up with this phrase, embedded incarnational mission, to describe the call that God is placing on our lives to the church. That means the places in which we live, we need to see ourselves embedded in those places. This is my place. This is where I live. I'm proud of my place. I love my place. This is a beautiful place. Look at these people, aren't they wonderful people? They look at their look at these look at the, the achievements of the past, isn't this that have brought us to this space? This is a wonderful place to be, to be embedded in our space and love our space. That's a bit of a revolutionary thought for me. From a Christian perspective, 
I think I'd be trained to see the context in which I live as, as inadequate, insufficient, not enough, struggling, doing its best, and if they would just accept what I have to say to them, then it would be a better place. But what is what would it mean if we what would it mean if we love the places that we value them, love them, embrace them? And so then the incarnational part is living out the life of Christ in this place in which we love, so that the people that experience Christ in the context of some of the people that love them and are proud of them and believe in them. And so we constructed this, this idea that is becoming the rallying cry for us as a field, but it's the same idea. Where's God calling to you? I see this really remarkably reflected in this in this second passage of scripture. The glorious part is the second passage, second chapter of Philippians. Sometimes I stop to think of I, I forget to think about the words I'm about to say next. Right, I'm already reading three sentences down, so that'll have to stop. I want to read to you this hymn of the early church that beautifully describes who Christ is. This is who Christ is, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a beautiful scripture, isn't it? It's a, it's a magnificent scripture reflecting on who Christ is. And, and I am, as, as Rob knows well, um, I am convinced that we do not fully understand scripture until we understand the, the interplay between love and honor. That the way love is communicated is through honor. And when you look at this scripture here, what you see Jesus is in the place of honor, in the glory of, of God and in the presence of God, as he is God, the, the second member of the Trinity, Refusing to hold on to that which is his, but moves from the place, moves from the place of honor to take the lowest place. And there in the lowest place, gives his life as the least of the least, lives out his life in the place of dishonor and dies the death of the dishonor. And God, seeing his son, raises him up to the place of honor, and as a result of that glorious movement from the place of dishonor to the glorious place of honor at the right hand of the Father, receives honor himself. That's what that last phrase means, the glory of God the Father. That is what that means. He receives, God receives honor, recognition of his worth, 
as he moves Jesus from the place of dishonor to the place of honor. And it's a beautiful scripture, and it can't be, it can't be um, overexpressed. This tremendous journey from the place of honor to the place of dishonor or shame. It is, it is incomprehensible for us to recognize adequately this journey from honor to dishonor or shame. We experience this dishonor, this shame, in our brokenness. And in our brokenness, we gravitate towards experiences that communicate to us that we are worthless. If something says that we are worthless, we'll go, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that's probably right. Even if we sing a hymn with such a worm as I, we'll say, yeah, that's me. We gravitate to this place of worthlessness. And we understand that place. We don't like it. We despise it. But we filter almost all of our experiences through that to this place of dishonor, this place of worthlessness, this place of shame. It's natural for us. We feel right there. How do, how do we recognize that? Well, let's say uh, you go to somebody and you say, my goodness, that was wonderful what you just did there. That was lovely. What's typically their response going to be? Oh, it's nothing. It, 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 was, it was just me. Oh, yeah, sorry, it was it was just it was just but it wasn't anything. It didn't it didn't mean anything. It wasn't it wasn't me, that's what I meant to say. It wasn't me. You know, well, who was it? Um because we, we feel uncomfortable with that space of, of being on it. We feel uncomfortable with it. Why? Because the very center of our being is attuned to the brokenness that is the residual of our broken relationship with the Father. Our coming to know who we are is in the context of broken relationship. And so brokenness for us resonates with our understanding of who we are. And we despise and we hate and we build up all sorts of defense mechanisms to try and protect ourselves, but anything cracks those defense mechanisms and we will react in one way or another. Tears, anger, hiddenness, Silence, disconnectedness, isolation. Um, one of those manifestations of our brokenness. So we know what it is to live in dishonor. So when Jesus steps out of glory, the place of honor, to the place of dishonor, do you think he knows then what that is? You think he's aware? Yes. Yes. He is aware. He's very, that's the whole point. He stepped into the place of dishonor and the whole point of the cross, the whole journey to the cross is dishonor. And it's what makes, it what, it's what makes the cross so offensive. That's what makes the cross offensive because no God can save his people through such dishonor. A God, when a God comes, must come in glory. He must come in power. He must come in the highest of honor, or he cannot be God. 
And so that's why the cross is offensive. The whole world at that time um, echoed, uh, marches to the echo of the drums of Rome, where honour is very clearly portrayed in the emperor. That's the highest one. That's the coming king. That's, in fact, the king of kings. That's who it is. Yet this one comes in brokenness and comes to dishonour. How can this be? How can this be the case? So now let's read the first part of this passage once again with this journey resonating in our background. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. By being like-minded. But first of all, I just want to pause for a moment. See these questions, these statements. So if there is any encouragement, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete, complete my, my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If there is. So why would Paul write that? If there is. Why would he say that? Well, would he say because there is, but he says if there is. Well, it's a rhetoric device, right? Because he knows the answer is yes. He knows that these people know this. He knows that their reality is one of encouragement in Christ. They're not, they're not non-believers. They know Christ and they know encouragement by they have found comfort in love. They know participation in spirit. They know affection. They know sympathy. They know joy. They know love. And so, so when Paul says, if there is, he knows that they know that there is. And this is vital to us in our Wesleyan perspective. We, uh, we, we value very highly that, uh, that from our theological perspective, we centre around love. But in the centering around love, here's the wonder of centering around love. You see it in the eyes of the people that have been loved. You see it in the transformed life. You see it in the lived experience. Listen, if I had my way, we would... We would spend not one lick of time proving the scriptures, or proving that God is real, or trying to trying to twist or bend arguments to make sure that people understand the validity of God. Not one lick of time, because the evidence is never in our arguments. The evidence is in our lives, and so we live out love. And if that's not enough, you've got nothing else. If the love of your life is not convinced the reality of Christ, there is nothing else that is adequate. And so then he says, uh, so he said, be of one mind. Um, sorry, let me back up. Um, being like-minded, and then he says, be of the same mind, and do nothing of selfish, do nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let me just ask you a little probing question here. What is selfish ambition or vain conceit? What would that be? 
in the context of what we've just said in the story of, of dishonor and honor. Wouldn't the idea that selfish ambition or vain conceit being the pursuit in my own power for honor, wouldn't that be an adequate definition? To pursue my own honor out of my own power, that would be pride. That would be selfish ambition. That would be vain conceit. Each of you should look not to your not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Each of us should seek to honor the other. Actually, the phrase that before I've underlined this so much, I can't follow the sentence. Do nothing of selfish ambition in vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not look to, to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Here's an interesting question. Consider others better than yourself. Here's an interesting question. Did Jesus forget who he was when he journeyed on this earth? Did, did he know who he was or not? He knew who he was, right? He knew he was the son of God. So he knew that he left that place of honor behind. He knew that all the glory that was his was behind him, and he's being in the place of the servant, the slave, the one that will die to dishonor death. He knew that. But he didn't do anything to bring honor to himself. Just let it be where it is because he knew who he was. So when I thought about honoring others above myself, that sounds like this. So here's, here's the other, and here's me. But to honor others above myself means to degrade myself down here and to, and to be seen as nothing. Well, that's kind of the journey that Jesus took, but did he get who he was? No. So Jesus, knowing who he was, took that place. What if it was more like this? I know who I am. And I'm going to take the place of, honor, of dishonor and honor the other. And by so doing, I raise them up from that place, from the place that they are to the place that they should be, because I'm very, very aware of who I am in Christ. It's not about simply beating yourself up. It's not about feeling worthless. It's about genuinely recognizing who you are and then uh, loving others to raise them up above you. This is the idea of honor. This is where love and honor come together. That in order to love somebody, I must honor them. I must give them worth. I must. I can't love them without that. So when we start to understand this interplay between love and honor, we start to see the calling of God upon my life to find that place that will allow me to elevate others, that will allow me the opportunity to give others glory, to give others honor. What would the church look like if we had spent 2,000 years, rather than condemning the world for their wickedness and their 
uh, being unlike God, had spent 2,000 years clearly communicating how loved the world is by God. What would the church look like today if that would be the way we had spent our time? It doesn't mean that sin is acceptable. It doesn't mean that brokenness is okay. It just means that what we want people to experience and understand is love first. And when you get love, then we can deal with the other, uh, other stuff. You used to have a friend that would say, um, I'm pretty sure pretty God, people are pretty clear on the rejection stuff. But have they heard the love stuff? They're pretty clear. They understand the rejection. They get that pretty clear. But have they understood the love? And so, then Paul says, your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then the hymn. So a lot of times we pull this, this hymn out and we glorify Christ in it, and rightfully so. But are we hearing what Paul is saying? Have this mind in you. Be of one mind, not one opinion, of one mind. Well, what is that mind like? It's like Jesus, who in the place of honour, knowing who he was, chose the place of brokenness in order that he might honour others and raise them up. And in that place of Jesus didn't raise himself up, Father, Father, So it's not self-imposed glory. It's the, it's the God-given glory that reflects glory back on God. And so here's our call today. Here is what it is to live with the mind of Christ. I know who I am. I know who loves me. I don't have to spend any time at all seeking validation or honour. I have all that I need in him. I will give my life away to bring honour and glory to those around. Not condemnation and rejection, but honour and glory. And as we go about creating honour and glory, we create a space in which the Holy Spirit gets to work. And the Holy Spirit gets to speak into the heart and says, see that brokenness? I want to bring you healing. See that struggle? I want to bring you past it. See that mountain? I'm going to take you over it. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. One closing thought. We just make up our mind, right? We just choose because they don't something to do. That's how we do it. You know, and I know, we can't. We can't. Our brokenness is so overwhelming that we can't. That's where grace comes in. That's where the presence of God comes in. That's where my laying myself in my brokenness before Christ and 
surrendering my brokenness and all that I use to define my identity to him. Gives me the opportunity, or gives him the opportunity to fill my heart with his love, to transform my mind, and to empower me through the presence of the Holy Spirit to not only have the mind, but to live out of the mind of Christ. And folks, if we do that, everything that you study here will make sense. If we do that, then we will see the glory of God upon our land. We will. God desires and longs to walk with us into our brokenness in order that we might love those around us in a way that restores honor them to them. It's not a quick way, but it is the only way. The mind of Christ. If you'd like to learn more about the college, please check us out online at ntc.edu.au and you can follow us on Facebook. We hope to see you again in a future episode.